Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. We're back here, of course, with John Mackay, and we're joined once again by uh, our good friend Sam Jenkins, who will also be looking after the chat, which we've already got some coming through. I've just seen the little notification pop up. So hello, everybody who's watching already. That's great. Um, Some good news, by the way. Our rather controversial topic last week has been our most ever viewed uh, creation conversations on every single platform that it was put out on. So that's some really great news there. Uh, So thank you for everybody who watched it and shared it. Yes, don't forget to like and share this uh, this um, broadcast as well. Uh, it really does help us. Um, we've got some uh, good news about uh, the people who've been wanting to donate stuff through Super Chat as well. Uh, we're very, very close to being able to get that all set up. But every single time you watch something, it actually gets us one step closer to that. So uh, how are we all this week then? Well, down under, it's one of the coldest mornings we've had in ages, only 12 degrees in Queensland where I am as we head <laughs> into summer. Degrees. So it's, it's got to be due to global warming. So, <laughs> And uh, it's just uh, just lovely and crisp, a bit too cold for my, my Aussie blood outside. Uh, but we're doing well, very busy with ministry, particularly Jurassic Arc. Great stuff. Well, it's only about four or five degrees outside at the moment. So um, we're probably looking for our first frost of the year over this side of the country in the UK. So uh, how, uh, how are you doing, Sam, down there? Well, I'm doing good. Yeah. Um, been a busy week this week. Uh, lots of um, uh, things to do on the uh, the new project we've got. I've uh, been slowly, slowly chipping away at that. Uh, got some good uh, feedback uh, from yourself on that so i've been sort of slowly whittling away on that um it is coming guys it is coming slowly but surely but it is coming don't worry we'll see it eventually um but apart from that yeah i'm, I'm doing really well yeah good stuff good stuff well uh, let's let's start up as we normally do with a little bit of a ministry update um and john i'll ask you to chip in but have a look at what i've got here something that uh, just turned up to the museum collection the other day it's a little piece of worked stone how do I know that it's worked? Well, you can usually tell because there's no way that you could get a stone looking like this from natural processes, right? It takes very, very specific pressure points at different parts of the stone to actually split it off. And even see, I'm not sure if the camera will sort of pick it up, but lots and lots of little nibbly bits all the way along, which can only be done by putting extreme amounts of pressure in a tiny little spot, something that just couldn't happen naturally from, say, frost cracking or things like that. So this is like a little adz, as we call it. Uh, It would have been bound onto a stick to sort of chip away at wood, a little bit like a mini axe to kind of slice through it. It's a wonderful little specimen, and it also is a great example of how do you actually recognize something that has been designed. You see, this rock, even though it's a natural rock it's a bit of low-grade flint it contains properties that do not come from the original material and properties that could not happen naturally Um, in other words this has been designed so it's a great little thing you can use as an example for recognizing design around the world Uh, and the nice link of course is a computer code which is just ones and noughts they have no inherent information or value to them but if they're put together in the right way 
by an intelligent mind who was not part of them, existed before them, and is far cleverer than them, then you can actually make a computer code. Just like your DNA is a computer code made up of sugars and phosphates and carbons and has nothing uh, to do with any inherent information, yet it codes for your entire body. It contains properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of so it's designed just like our little stone tool there so there's a nice little addition to our museums project do by the way continue to pray for our museums project we need a lot of prayer at the moment uh, as we continue working forward with it so uh, do keep that in your prayers and of course you can support uh, the museum project and the work that we do around the globe including creation conversations by donating very soon through Super Chat, but if you uh, get the time to go to the um, information box, the uh, details underneath the video, you can find uh, information of how to donate to us there. John, give us a ministry update from down under. Okay, well, I'm glad you started with the stone tool because last Saturday, sort of almost a week ago here in Australia, um, we had a busload of people from the town of Rockhampton. They'd driven six hours to come stay overnight and then spend the whole day at Jurassic Ark. And as a special deal, we had a stone um, napper. You know, that's the proper word. He would spend his time napping, a K-N-A-P-P-I-N-G. That's shaping stone tools. And he showed the kids how to do it. And, and he, it was so sharp when he was napping this flint that he could shave his arms and they just went, ah. Oh! Um, they didn't want to try it, of course, because it really was sharp. But he and I were comparing notes because I'm sort of, reaching my 74th year on this planet due to God's grace at leaving me alive here. I've been collecting stone tools since I was 18. So, uh, Joseph, I do have a few more than you do. And uh, I've noticed one thing. I was out uh, off Gladstone, right? And there in the, the low tide, I came across a tool in the mud. Now, I looked at this tool, but was it a tool or was it just a broken stone? And then I picked it up and yes, it fitted perfectly in my hand, but there was only one thing I could do with it. It wasn't a sharp blade. It wasn't a straight blade. It was curved. And then I thought, I know what this is. This is for opening oysters because we're in a big oyster bed. So I leaned down and I gave a test to my hypothesis. I put it on an oyster and flipped. And sure enough, it worked perfectly. But the interesting thing was it fitted my right hand. Now, the Napper and myself, and he's becoming part of our ministry because he's fallen in love with what we do, and he wants to show kids how unprimitive you have to be to make a stone tool. Not, not primitive, not stone age. You have to be advanced in order to turn stone into a tool. And he and I have concluded one thing. I've got mostly right-handed tools, but every now and then I find one, and I can't hold it in my right hand, but it fits beautifully in my left hand which means somebody has added a property we don't even think of. They've added handedness. So you, some people are left-handed, but, you know, it's only a small percentage of the population. And both he and I have only ever found a small percentage of stone tools designed to fit in left hands. So human beings have produced their own kind, uh, even in terms of right or left-handedness, yeah. and it even shows in the stone tools. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, most of you wouldn't even think of doing that 
unless you are well equipped at A, making tools, and B, you recognise that some people couldn't use a right-handed stone tool, they needed a left-handed stone tool, and you figured out how to do that. So this is, again, not primitive, it's advanced, and it does reflect what Joseph said. It recognises that the stone can't make stone tools, the stone can't recognise handedness, any more than your DNA sugars can tell that they're left-handed or right-handed, even though they are only one sort, the only sort that fits the chemistry of the human body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's great stuff. We have another um, stone tool here that's been in the collection for a little while, and it's a little bit more, you might call it sophisticated. It's it's shaped a lot better. It's got a lovely, lovely edge on it in the front there. Very, very sharp. And I'm, um, I'm relatively good friends with a, a stone uh, uh, napper in um in the uk and his dad has been a stone napper for a lot lot longer than he is and i used to go when i was a little kid and go and watch him sort of smash these stones up and produce these beautiful things he's actually just uh finished making a special um stone axe uh for us here in the uk for the museum which is a a great blessing he's all does you know exactly the same way that it would have been done with a handle and fitted in and the pitch and everything and uh, he's been doing it for 40 odd years and even he says you know after 40 odd years of a experience with all of the added information that we have about stone axes all the hundreds and hundreds of papers that people have been studying hand axes all of the internet that you can share stuff and you know just the other week he has talking to somebody in america about how the native americans used to make hand axes and stone tools and arrowheads and it's still so different from the stuff that we find here in the uk and he said after all of this time and all of this experience he's still nowhere near as good as uh, the ones that you can go and find you know out on the beaches and washed out of the mud and so on and so forth so it's not primitive in the slightest in fact we may have even taken a step back because he says that he makes his own knives for cutting meat because they don't go blunt they cut meat absolutely beautifully like a razor sharp i mean you were saying how you know your guy shaved his hairs off right they're razor sharp and they stay razor sharp unlike our steel knives which uh, you have to keep on sharpening right so um maybe we've taken a step back with that kind of technology it's well, interesting one, one of the things joseph that came up in last week was the use of stone knives in scripture because mm -hmm. Abraham used a flint knife. And so I talked yep. to the napper about that. And he actually made a flint knife while we washed. And it was so sharp, I could see why Abraham would use it to circumcise the boys. <laughs> It'd be a real quick snip. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and as much as we smile at that and think that's thousands of years ago, the surgeons today prefer flint stone knives because you don't have to sharpen them. They are better than any steel edge we can get. There's one other thing we put into practice last Saturday because we had a school ask us, um, can we bring 50 year ones? This is the little kids, you know, just finished kindergarten. Can we bring them to Jurassic Ark? And I went, oh no, we're used to universities. We're used to high school. We're used to upper primary year ones. What do we do with them? So after talking around uh, to lots of school groups and that, we came up with what's proved to be brilliant for even the adults love doing it as well. Um, we actually made a new sand pit and in the sand pit, we buried fossils and stones and they could find as many as they like. The exercise, of course, was to see if they could come up with a name. And, and, and of course, they did get to keep one. I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to show you uh, the four of the, the items that went into the pit. 
and uh, you can try and figure out for yourself what you'd call it. But I'll do what they do on the, you know, the old top 40 type um, music shows. We're going to start with the least popular one. They found lots of these and usually threw them back, right? They thought they were just sticks. Well, they're not sticks, but what would you call them? Because in America, you find lots of bits of these and they usually mm. call them Indian money. Bits and pieces break off. That was the least popular because they're still actually in the stone, in the sand pits. They just threw them away, um, dull and grey. Um, with the boys, by the way, it turned out there was definitely a gender bias. The boys like the shark's teeth. The girls like the pretty stones. It's amazing <laughs> how gender is not a taught thing. Gender is actually something that's right in there. Those fools who think they can be transgender or change kids' gender, then I'll tell you what, they have another thing coming. The bodies of those kids they artificially manipulate will rebel. And don't be surprised if you are responsible for those kids committing suicide because transgender is a lie. Uh, even the stones and the shark's teeth prove it. Um, they, they did recognise they were shark's teeth, by the way, even if they didn't recognise that this was a bit of quartz with some iron tinting in it. They liked it because it was pretty. And, of course, funny thing, I should say, in honesty, the least popular and the most popular at the same time as this one, a dirty yellowish-grey rock. Oh, most people threw it away. But the boys who kept it, and it was only the boys who kept it, uh, when they came and asked me what I'd call it, I refused to tell them because part of that job was they had to come up with a name. And yet I said, in the afternoon, when we're down at our other fossil site, I'll smash this for you and show you what's inside. Okay, the name game. Well, for those of you who don't know what these are, they're crinoids. When I was young, these were considered extinct. Now we know they live on the Great Barrier Reef and they're found 200 metres deep off the coast of New York. They're actually sea lilies. This is just the stem. And they break off in little rings and the kids uh, play with them in Kentucky and Tennessee as Indian money. Little round rings they are. But they just look like dull sticks. Oh, by the way, the girls soon figured out that that was a stone. But they didn't know where the word stone came from. And I had to remind them not to be afraid of coming up with names because that's how we did it. I mean, if you know your Bible, God gave Adam his first job was to actually name things. And we have no idea if he named that jumping rat the big kangaroo or what he called a platypus. We have no idea. Babel's been between Adam and now. But we do know where words like stone came from because the Romans brought it into England when they invaded in 43 B.C. Stone just means something hard. So we've invented names for these things. And when you look at this, as we've said before, our shark's teeth fossil, I have one site where I take uh, students to, and there are thousands of these things. We've got bag loads of these that are put into our, uh, our pits at the moment. And they love collecting them, and they have no trouble recognising fossil shark's teeth because they just look like shark's teeth. So again, the real point of this is that the fossils don't help evolution. David Attenborough is lying to you. Uh, I mean, he glosses over it and he should know much better. In fact, I'll be blunt, he does know. Oh, and this one, this little geode, when you smash it open, as dull as it looks on the outside, it's been a cavity in the ground, in a rock, and it's filled up with moisture and the moisture has brought silica in 
and the silica turns to crystals. So the kids love them because they're absolutely full of quartz crystals. And quartz, well, that's just an old word meaning very hard, <laughs> harder than the stone even. So don't be afraid of making up the names. It's the first job God gave us. And whenever you want to know something's name, remember it's one of the evidences we were made in God's image and he named the first man. Amen. Yeah, great, great stuff, John. Great info. Great update. Okay, um, let's before we get you know our topic tonight is this revisiting this topic of why would a good God make bad things? In specific, why would He make things like, you know, venom? Why would He make things like spiders with their nasty bites and their webs, which are so brilliantly designed to catch flies? Or are they? Why would he make scorpions and so on and so forth? But we'll get into that a little bit later. What I want to do first is to um, is to revisit the sort of practical side of what we were talking about last week. If you remember from last week, if you haven't watched it or listened to it on podcasts, yes, we're on podcasts now. Where can you find us, Sam? Uh, we're available wherever you can find a podcast. Hang on, I'll put up a, a graphic for you guys. Uh, where's it gone? There we go. There we go. Uh, we can. Uh, you can find us wherever you find a podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Uh, there should be a link in the description box for finding all of our um, locations for I where you can find uh, us. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, if you haven't uh, listened or watched us, do go back and check it out. It's our most viewed creation conversations of all time on any platform that we've put it out on. Uh, we put it out on two platforms on Facebook and on YouTube. So that's great. Um, and you were saying that it's our tied top one for podcast as well, Sam. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we've got one other one that's got the top spot on podcast, but I have a feeling it's going to overtake it. Yeah, no, that's great. So, yeah, it's been a really popular one, probably because of how controversial it was. And if you remember, we were talking about when should a Christian disobey the government? When should a Christian defy the government? Right. And we had to go way back into the history. And we use the UK's history as a model because the UK's constitution and the Magna Carta and the moral law, which the country is founded on, affected, let's face it, most of the rest of the world, because we were in charge of it most of the rest of the world at one point. Right. So it really pays to understand some history. But what is the practical side of this? In other words, what we want to look at tonight, and this is a question that we've had come up uh, out of these podcasts and out of this presentation last week, is what should it look like when a Christian defies the government? Or another way of putting it is how should a Christian act in times of persecution? All right. Now, I was uh, in uh, America for uh, several months um, at the beginning of 2020 before all of all that, or actually even during part of the initial lockdown, I was stuck over there. Right, So uh, at the late part of 2019, early part of 2020, we were over there. And I stayed, uh, one of the people that I ended up staying with uh, had lots and lots of guns in their house. Um which, you know, I understand the reason why you might want to have guns. You have the right to bear arms, as they say, um, in America, and uh, all of the constitutional reasons. But the interesting thing was, he said, he was a Christian, right? And he said he wanted to have all of the semi-automatic rifles and assault weapons in order to keep the government in check. Now, to a British person like me, that was 
mildly f- funny. Uh, but, you know, I understand from a constitutional perspective why that is the case. Of course, the interesting question that springs out of that is, say the government is doing something wrong, is it a Christian's responsibility to go up in arms and actually charge at them? How should a Christian respond in times of persecution? What should it actually look like? Now, this is something which hardly any pastors have preached on. I've, you know, it's been something that's really lacking, I think, personally anyway, uh, in the church around the globe, is how should you as a church, how should you as Christians respond in times of persecution? Now, the Bible, of course, is not silent on this. Um, Both books of uh, Peter, both of the epistles of Peter, go into how a Christian should act at times of persecution. But perhaps the biggest one is the account of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, taken, of course, from their homeland, taken into captivity by a king, which God specifically said he had put in charge in order to bring judgment upon the children of Israel. I mean, just read the book of Jeremiah, right? The weeping prophet. It starts off by saying, hey, I have raised Nebuchadnezzar up to come and destroy you, to come and place judgment on you to come and bring wailing and gnashing of teeth all right this was a king who was put in charge by god the bible is clear and he brought destruction upon the children of israel and as a result of that you had the captivity you get taken into israel and then nebuchadnezzar puts a big idol up and he commands everybody to bow down and worship the idol and everybody does except for shadrach meshach and abednego right? The three Jews. Now, what do they do to begin with? They go and they make a case uh, against the king. They say, we can't do this because we believe in the one true God. And he says, do not bow down to any false gods, right? Do not make an idol and bow down to it. It's the second commandment right there, right? And so they make a case to the king. They try and appeal to the king. And we have lots of appeals going on uh, by Christians to governments all the time. Great stuff. But what happens then? The king, of course, gets angry and he says, you are going to be thrown to the fiery furnace. Now, at this point, did uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego turn around and grab their AR-15 and charge towards the king or whatever local weapon technology there was at the time? Right? No, they didn't. They had to submit themselves to the authority which God had placed over them, namely King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they didn't follow through with the argument. They didn't follow through and say, oh, well, fair enough, we're going to go bow down to the argument. They certainly defied the king's instruction, but they were still subject to him uh, and his authority having been placed there by God. And the result, they got thrown into the fiery furnace. And even they admitted that God may very well not choose to save us, but we're still not going to obey your evil command. But we will be subject to your authority by being thrown into the fiery furnace by the king. Of course, God did save them through a miracle and they came out completely unharmed, even though the furnace was so hot, it drew the guards in right and burned them alive as well. So it makes an interesting case and it makes an interesting question too. What is the practical side of things uh, for Christians when it comes to defying the government? So that's what we're going to have a little look into first this evening. John, do you want to start off with any comments? Because you've had a pastor yes. contact you recently. Yes, I, I have. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I'll throw in Daniel in your discussion and put a, a memo in about believers in high places. Because as much as we treat Daniel, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego as ordinary people, they were anything but. They had been set aside by the king's helpers 
as wiser than all the other kids, as mm -hmm. smarter, as um, healthier, they're given the best diet, etc. And in reality, um, you, you get young Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are at the top of the pile and they chose to take a stand for the God who'd created everything. Now, I'm pr pretty sure the average Jew also wouldn't have bowed down uh, in most cases, but they wouldn't have been able to make a case before the king because the king didn't even know they existed and they had no access to the high courts like Absolutely. these three yeah. guys. So therefore, point number one, you Christians in high positions, you make sure that you stand for what Jesus Christ says. Now, you may very well pay a price with your career, but you have to be willing to pay that price in the New Testament context. As Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And he said, unless you bear your cross and follow me, you are not my disciple. You are not worthy of me at all. So they're swapping from Old Testament, New Testament. So if you're a Christian in high position, stand and be counted, please. There is nothing more important, particularly at this moment. Now to throw Daniel into the, uh, well, he didn't make it into the fire. He made it into the lion's den. And I still remember when I first became a Christian, not that I grew up in Sunday school, but there was a popular chorus in those days called Dare to be a Daniel, Dare to Stand Alone. Now, in our world out here in Australia, those of us who are taking a stand on abortion or on homosexuality or on transgender are very often alone, even in the churches, right? And so what we've had to do is say, well, here's what God says, not my opinion, we had one famous footballer who made only one little mistake in taking a stand against homosexuality. He didn't attribute what was said by him to the Apostle Paul. Uh, it came back on him and they said, what right have you got? And basically lost his career over it. But he was willing to, to take that price. Now, Daniel, of course, was uh, a guy who perhaps went a bit further than most of us would be willing to. He was supposed to not pray openly to his God. He was supposed to only uh, seek favor from the king. And so what he did was he went home and he decided every day he'd continue to do everything he'd done before. And he would throw open his window and he'd look towards Jerusalem. Now, you and I may not have to throw open our window and say, come on, the king's agents, here I am, spot me. Um, I'm pretty sure if he'd have shut his window, they would have said, what's he doing behind there? Is he plotting rebellion? Because either way, he was hung, drawn and quartered by sticking to what God had actually said. But he was willing to publicly be counted. So again, you and I and all of those people are out there. If you are in any position of influence at all, now is the time to be counted because next year may very well be too late. Two years from now, we may all be forced to vote transgender, to... Uh, all be forced to be have a number, all those sort of things that are in Scripture in an interesting way. Now, to get to this letter that uh, Joseph referred to, and, and it's, it's a good launching point to actually uh, flip into something coming up in the future. This pastor has now read the first two sermons because I sent to him last week. You may remember I broadcast from up near our Jurassic Ark. Mm -hmm. And again, if you haven't been to Jurassic Ark online, go and have a look at creationresearch.net, flip through, search the museum, see some of the things we're doing. And you can even get kids books now featuring our dinosaurs and, and our cartoon characters and my grandkids visiting Jurassic Ark. They're fabulous. They've got interactive technology you can get and, and you'll love those sort of things that are available. But this pastor uh, actually got my notes 
because I sent them personally to him. And Joseph, you're going to make those available to people? Those will be available uh, hopefully this evening. We're close with them up. I'm going to add them to a web page to our UK yep. site okay. and then yep. add it into the description of both yep. last week's video and this week's video. So you'll be able to get that. We've just literally just now received another email uh, yep. requesting it as well. So they will be yep. up very okay. shortly. Now that's good. Now they are sermon notes at the moment, even though we've had a yeah. request to turn it into a book. And we have uh, one young lady working on editing my sermon notes because Aussie sermon notes can sometimes be a little brief, but they will get you from end to end. And uh, anyway, he sent back another question and his question was, well, in my church, we have pro-vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, pro-maskers, anti-maskers. And overall, there's a, a, a almost a judgmental attitude sneaking into the Christian church in his country. We notice the same out here. And I'm pretty sure the devil's found a nice way to divide the Christians. Because instead of saying, well, come to our church and hear the gospel, the first question on one man asked that I know, have you been vaxxed? Well, you can't come here if you haven't. And you think, oh, what a way to get invited to, the, to church. And then there's one poor lady who, uh, because she had asthma, went to a Bible study and she basically got kicked out because she wouldn't wear a mask. And no one was interested in the fact that she she uh, had an asthma exemption. And I thought, no, this, this, the devil is playing games with God's people here. Instead of having wisdom, they're just bluntly acting in a way a pagan secular institution is dictating to them. So his letter was, can you give us some advice on how we are to react um, in, in, in accordance with God's word? And in fact, Joseph, in our discussion beforehand, we decided that, yes, we will. And I told him, hey, I've got to preach Sermon 3 yet, which is all about this, because we have actually preached Sermon 2 and Sermon 1 in two different churches. Yeah. And we preached it last Sunday night, open air in Jurassic, and it worked brilliantly. So now we're going to do Sermon 3 and those notes. We're going to touch that next week, Joseph, I believe. Yeah, I think if, we're, if you're available next week, I think that'd be great to go on to next week. Um, I mean, we've got loads of topics we can obviously go into. Uh, we're, we're, we're by no means slowing down, and we're uh, also getting some guests on and stuff in the future, so that'd be good. But yeah, I think next week, this is something that is really vital to be sorted now um and i think that it should be yeah we'll deal with it next week we'll delve into sort of part two and three kind of thing and and look perhaps a bit more at the practical side of things when it comes to when a christian should or shouldn't uh, obey a government and how that should look like for christians um because you know without going into too much detail about eschatology or the end times because of course we you know, de don't deal with controversial things like that with creation research. Um, <laughs> we are certainly moving towards Jesus coming again, right? And have been ever since he promised us that it would be very soon. So uh, we're moving towards it, and it should be something that pastors and Christian leaders should be talking about and not getting hyper-emotional about because as soon as you get hyper-emotional about it, you tend to deviate away from scripture uh, and get on to sort of personal convictions so as much as we all hate the whole you know covid and vaccine and you know government limitations and so on and so forth where do we draw the line between okay this is now where we are called to be subject to our government and obey our government and here is where 
we actually have to defy them because it goes against what scripture clearly teaches. And if that's the case, if we do have to go against them because that's what scripture clearly teaches we should do, how should that actually look like? You know, what is the practical side of disobeying the government? So I think it's a, it's a vital topic that we need to do. I think we should definitely deal with it later. And I think that uh, it's, it's interesting to uh, make historical comparisons because we were talking about this, John, just before we went on live about being able to compare Canada, the UK and Australia because we all have essentially the same constitution or the closest thing that we have to a constitution. We essentially have the same foundation of law and we essentially have the same um, moral system originally based on the Bible, if not anymore. You can't really make too many comparisons with the US of A, um, mainly because the United States of America is actually founded on the French Revolution, and the French Revolution themselves is founded on the pagan Greek, Greek ideas where evolution really started to take off. So can we just try and draw a quick comparison, John, between what's going on in Canada and the stories we've heard of in Canada, what's going on in Australia, and what's going on in the UK, and seeing how they all kind of tie together? Well, to summarise a bit of what you just said, we will have to discuss in that whole program, do we get to a situation like Oliver Cromwell, who actually you know, kicked out the king and chopped his head off? Uh, do we actually get to uh, George III versus George W., the Washington man, yeah. uh, all of whom were English and had a Christian ethos a kingdom sort of style and now they appoint kings for only four years at a time um, and the answer has to be yes we have to deal with both of those extremes but to tell you um, to run a quick um, check on it we have in Canada at the moment um, churches going underground for the first time in their whole history because mm. I was talking yeah. to a preacher yesterday yeah. who said I'm now preaching underground now, I'm pretty sure you're going to start to see that sort of thing in England if your government gets tougher. But they've done, a, oh, in sure. my opinion, a marvellous thing, declared COVID to be just another flu. Let's get on with it. So a few other countries done that and it's working really well. Yeah, I think uh, the, um, Australia, Singapore, I think, we has have, done that as well. Yeah, that's right. We have a, a, a weird balance from state to state. So we have a very feminist and atheist antagonistic government in my state who would love to get us all under at the same time as they tell us, uh, you know, we really care for you, we care for your health, and they legislate the death of thousands of babies. Uh, huge contradictions that Christians yeah. have to take a stand on. And here's the weakness, most of them are not. I had another email from West Australia yesterday saying, we are so pleased to see you providing leadership in this area because we need to know what to do. No pastors are preaching on it. They're running away from it and thinking we can just talk about spiritual issues. Hmm. So spiritual for sure, but practical has to be the name of the game. Jesus said you may not be of the world, but you're actually in the world. What you just said there, John, about you know they're not being pastors and spiritual leaders dealing with this issue. I've heard you say exactly the same thing but about a completely different um, issue, a completely different spiritual issue, and that's marriage. I mean, yep. I remember you said when you did the first Creation of Love and Marriage program, how the pastor came up to you afterwards and said, oh, that's brilliant, that's just what the church needed to hear. And you go, well, why haven't you preached it for? And he said, well, they'd, they'd kill me, you know, but they need to have somebody 
actually tell them these things. So you need to have people who are willing to stand up and actually preach the word of God and give a biblical perspective on these spiritual things. Because look what happened when the church stopped preaching on marriage. I mean, you now have churches who promote gay marriage. You have churches who uh, are inclusive um, of 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 any, you know, uh, transgender or any sexual orientation. And by the way, inclusive, I'm not meaning allow you into the church, but I mean allow into the church and not tell them when you're doing something sinful. And uh, John, just a moment, because I don't know the full details, but didn't you have a couple of a young gay couple come uh, into uh, one of your meetings or watch one of the DVDs and they'd said afterwards they hadn't even heard Heard that it was wrong to you know yeah. practice they certainly it did they certainly did um somebody had had the courage to give them a dvd that we produced um uh, made made me a little unpopular in certain circles but they came and they said we didn't even know homosexuality was wrong mm. and i instantly thought of you know jonah who was sent to the people of nineveh yeah, yeah. Said, why should i go to them they're so bad they're so rotten and God said, don't you have any pity? There's hundreds of thousands of them, and they don't even know their right That's hand and their left. It only takes one generation of adults and pastors mm -hmm. to not teach what God says, and the next generation, even of the Christians, don't know what to do. We, we have a lady out here who runs a ministry called Binary, and she, she really deals with her, her sadness at particularly the young girls who are being told they can be men, and she's really trying to deal with that issue and says, I can't get pastors to support me right now. They regard it as too radical, too right wing, et cetera, et cetera. But she's really only telling the truth, but to a culture that's grown up without the truth on sexual matters for a long time. Mm. Now, at the other extreme, our New Zealand rep actually took the DVD I, I did and gave it to a doctor who was a mother of some boys who'd just become homosexuals. Now, this was in a church, right? And the mother was actually uh, actually encouraging the boys because it was just a medical issue. And we had lost sight totally. No, here's what God says, regardless of what you think the genes are, regardless of whether you think you're born like that, the Bible says. Now, that's what we encourage any of you young men out there who uh, uh, are worried about this look at what god says regardless of what your feelings are find out what the bible says whether it's about alcohol or drunkenness uh theft or whatever it doesn't make any difference what god says go with it it'll always prove to be right even if it makes you unpopular but that, those things will all come up in that issue on government authority because it touches everything where do you get married how do you get married can the pastor do this must the government supervise it etc yeah, absolutely. And it's stuff that scripture is exceedingly clear about. Um, yeah, it seems to be hardly ever touched on by um by uh by Christians and, and, and part Christian leaders and pastors. So it is it is sad. What I think we'll do before we move on to our next sort of topic, which is supposed to be our main topic tonight, but we've spent a good deal of time on this already. Um, Sam, I've seen a couple of questions running uh coming in, especially I think I saw one about uh false prophets and stuff. Can we just run through a couple of questions uh about this topic um before we move on to our next topic, which is of course uh bitey things and stingy things, um, which may make it easier to deal with these questions now. So what have we got in the chat going on, Sam? Yeah, certainly we've got a lot of people watching, so good to see everyone here. Um, we've got uh, George, good to see you, buddy. Stacy, Keith, uh, Esther, Ryan, good to see you all. Uh, right, let's have a look to see if there's any questions here. 
Um, uh, let's have a look. There was one I did see uh, just now. Um, yeah, uh, this one here. Uh, may I ask what the Bible says about false prophets in the end times? What are the signs of false prophets to look out for? Um, I think. Great question. Yeah, it, it, it is very interesting because it's it's. If you look at sort of a typical sort of um, a, a one um, chapter that springs to mind is Matthew twenty four, but there's there, there there's only really one real verse on it. Um, it, it says uh, it's in uh, yeah ver, uh, verse uh, verse eleven of chapter twenty four Matthew um, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, um, and that's sort of all really that says on that topic so it's very interesting that you've brought that up um it, it false prophets are mentioned quite a few times um joe do you want to expand anything on that yeah i'll just try grabbing up a, a bible verse in 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 peter john do you want to just uh, comment on there while i just grab this up okay the thing that the bible warns you about is the origin of all false prophets is Satan's lie back in, in Genesis where he said to Eve, did God really say, right? And then he went on to expand on that and Eve fell for it because what the devil asked was a double negative question, which is really hard to get your head around anyway. But you'll find that from then on, the scripture talks about the devil being a liar and the father of liars, and all false prophets are liars. But most people don't appreciate when it first started, it was just a question about a tree. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being asked a question. Eve just had the wrong answer. And so she fell for it. And the same happens ever so slowly with our modern false prophets, particularly some of the TV ones. So you will find that when you look at the false prophets, one comes to mind and he waves a Bible around all the time and spouts how he believes the Bible and all of that and never once opens it. Now, most people fall for him because he talks about millions of dollars and, and, and getting well and naming and claiming. Now, this guy here is a false prophet because what he should be doing is saying, here's what God's word says. You will not lust after money. The love of money is the root of all evil. You don't necessarily need to raise funds to buy a jet to beat all the mandates about COVID regulations across the planet. There are better ways. Get your government converted. Preach to them first before you fly to other countries and try and get a, 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 an easier life for yourself. But there is an even more subtle way because there's a, a false prophet spirit that's called the Jezebel spirit in Scripture. And you may remember Jezebel, uh, queen back there, very evil queen, sought all sorts of subtle ways to um, alter the, the, the route of the church. And as much as people don't like talking about the dark side, the occult side, I've crashed with it a few times. You stand for Jesus, then you'll sooner or later clash with those who are either possessed of spirits or influenced by satanic thoughts. And here's one thought. I interviewed an ex-Satanist. He'd become a Christian by the time I met him. And his job as a deacon in the church, did you catch what I just said? He penetrated the church. He said everything he needed to say. And I, I said to him, well, listen, you, you, you became a member of the church. How did you do that? They require a testimony. And he said, most Christians wouldn't recognize the devil if he walked into the room with a Bible under his arm, which is how he comes. 
And he said, I would get out the front and say, I'd like to say how the Lord has made me a wonderfully new person. Believing in the Lord has changed my life. I accept everything he's done and, and, and all his word being true. And he said, the average Christian doesn't know that their Lord is Jesus. His Lord is Satan. And he'd never named his Lord once. Mm -hmm. And then he said, we've got all sorts of tricks. He said, what we'll do is we'll actually get the church to get sidetracked on the mechanism instead of the message. So we have a big event coming up. Let's get the choir in prime condition. We normally have the choir meeting after Bible study, but we need to improve the choir. So cut the Bible study out this week and make sure the choir is doing really, really well. And then that becomes the habit. Of finally, there's no prayer meeting and our strength is the Jesus we pray to, not the quality of the choir. So most false prophecy is already in the church and you need, well, you need real wisdom. I remember talking to one uh, preacher who came to me one day and he said, John, the Lord has taught me a really good lesson. He used to be high up in the name and claim at the healing ministry, etc. He said, everybody that God has used me to heal, in the end they've died. It was far more important that they got saved. Now, you should have realized that when 10 lepers came and only two came back, right? The healing ministry, great, wonderful. God does do that. But in terms of overall contribution to people getting saved, it's always from Jesus to the present has always been a minimal event. Preaching the gospel, getting people mm. saved is the maximal event, no matter how healthy or sick your audience happens to be. So yeah. I'd encourage you, false prophecy is already in the church in a big way, and it sidetracks us from the whole of God's word. So hence, right from the start, when we got into creation research, it's God's word is true from the beginning, right through to the end, and you must preach it, preach it, preach it. So that's my first clue in this whole issue. Yeah. Let's throw in a few Bible verses. Let's start with uh, the Romans, uh, Romans chapter one, and talk about, well, what are some of the signs uh, of false teachers or false prophets, or at least signs of those who don't follow God, uh, don't follow Jesus? Because false prophets and false teachers, even though they masquerade as Christians, they ultimately are servants of Satan, just like the rest of the world. So what's the main or uh, uh, some of the ways that you can recognize this well romans actually tells us in uh, romans chapter one it says that uh, because they knew god they did not glorify him as god nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise they became fools and what did they do they changed the glory of the incorruptible god into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things therefore god gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of god for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator if you're worshipping the choir rather than the one who created the choir, then you've actually got a bit of a problem there. Now, if you want to go an in-depth study, 2 Peter chapter 2 all the way through to the beginning part of chapter 3 goes in depth about how to recognize a false teacher. But let me tell you one particular one which has creeped not into secular uh, circles, but also into the church, where it talks about in... Um, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying what? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of 
creation. But this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being with being flooded with water. But that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, the whole point that Peter's making is very, very simple. As soon as you start saying, well, the present is the key to the past, the way that we are, uh, you know, walking and the way that we are experiencing things today is the way that we should absolutely run church, you've got yourselves a problem. We need to look to the past, namely to Scripture, which was written uh, by revelation of God in the past, to actually look for, you know, place our doctrine, to build our doctrine and to build our way of teaching and our way of even down to the practical side of running churches. What false teachers will do is exactly the opposite of that, and you shouldn't be surprised because they're mirroring the lie which Satan pushes, which is the exact opposite of the Bible, which is the present is the key to the past. By the way, you've probably heard of that phrase before. That phrase was uh, sort of thought up and promoted by Charles Lyell, whose entire aim was to remove any concept of God out of people's thinking. He wanted to remove Moses from science. He wanted to remove scripture from science. And not only did that affect secular science in terms of things like millions of years and evolution, and we've spoken about that plenty of times, he actually managed to con the church into accepting this philosophy. And that philosophy can now be found throughout the whole of the church, uh, particularly in false prophets or heretical teachers who adopt that philosophy in every aspect, not just to do with creation and evolution, but also into how do we run church, how do we establish our doctrine, and how do we actually progress forward. So there's a few words for thought there uh, as well. Can I jump in quickly as well? Um, one thing that um, it's, it sort of happened to me as well is that um, I, I, you do research online and you come across all kinds of things. Um, but one of the things that uh, sort of re really pops up and is, a, I, I think, is a very big problem that the church definitely needs to address um, is the prevalence of uh, preachers that preach the prosperity gospel, where, oh, give this amount of money and you will get a blessing from God. And, you know, he wants to bless you, but you have to give first, you, do, you know, all that kind of things. And you read people's stories of, of you know, what happens after they give. And, you know, people experience nothing. People don't, you know, no, nothing happens or, you know, maybe something small happens and but not what they were quite wanting. And then they spiral into debt and they get really depressed. And it's just it's just a horrible movement. Um, that's taking the gifts of God and putting a price tag on them, mm. which is definitely something to watch out for um, in terms of getting solid teaching. Um you should steer if your if your church is teaching that that you have to pay to get a miracle get out mm. that's not the gospel you are being fed a lie don't listen to it anymore leave the church don't even say goodbye just don't turn up the next week and find another church um i mean one other thing that i was i was going to say um was in regards to bible teaching as well that's equally important find a church that has solid Bible teaching. I had this problem when I became a, a Christian um, again. Um, I, I I was I came to Christ back to Christ uh, through uh, this one church, um, and um, it's led by a, a Christian worship leader. He's quite famous in the UK, um, 
um, and he's got this church and I was attending sort of like the online meetings and it was very sort of, I didn't feel satisfied after view, after viewing it. I felt very empty. I felt I wanted more and it wasn't being taught. And then it slowly dawned on me that actually it was basically the same message every single week, just rehashed with a different title. Oh, God loves you. God, you know, did, you know, it, it wants amazing things for you. Um, if you want to, have a relationship with Jesus, then pray this prayer. And that's literally it. It was just rehashed, rehashed, rehashed. And as soon as I got out and I went back to my my very first church, I probably got into things with, um, I felt so much better spiritually. I really did. And it was just a, a amazing thing. And you can't really put a price on it on how damaging stuff like that can be for you is if you are not listening to good solid bible teaching you're not getting the spiritual nourishment you need and it will drain you emotionally and spiritually too for sure. joseph can you remind the people remember those two africans who came and mm. oh jesus, yes jesus false jesus absolutely inspiration absolutely okay so uh this was in manchester and uh we were meeting with we had we have our, our, our reps at the time our creation research representatives at the time uh, based up in manchester still very good friends of them one of them still works on our team and uh he'd uh, i mean our, our rep had had a great conversion story saved through uh the ministry of creation research and uh, a great stuff and so he really threw himself into evangelism with great vigor right and he ended up coming across this group of Congolese refugees that had been recently brought to the UK and were settling in, obviously very difficult settling in. It's a whole new environment, right? Uh, but they were trying to set up a church because they were Christians, right? And the leader, uh, his name was Thierry, he um, was a, a very, very hungry uh, person, hungry for truth, hungry for scripture, hungry for teaching, but he was the most advanced, if you like, or the most spiritually mature out of the whole group, right? So he was kind of their leader, the guy in charge, and so on and so forth, and uh, I got uh, was introduced to them, spent a lot of time going through, and I mean, these people were throwing out questions about the Trinity, they were throwing out questions, you know, theological question after theological question, right? And uh, after a while, he said to me, you know what, I can see the good Jesus in you and i was good jesus he said yes the good jesus not the bad jesus good jesus bad jesus and as i was talking more and more to them one thing that we found was that their background in the congo is sort of half catholic um half sort of weird spiritual pagan uh you know polytheism spirits in the trees and so on and so forth but also a filtering down from places like nigeria was this prosperity gospel the idea of you know you give god your seed and he'll increase it tenfold right and he said we have people come round to me uh, and come round to my village and come round to my towns and cities and come round to where we are and tell us that if we want healing if we want to know jesus if we want to understand Jesus, then we need to pay money. But he said, we pay money and nothing ever happens. He said, but you're telling us about Jesus without wanting any money. He said, you must worship the good Jesus. I want to worship the good Jesus too. I don't want to follow the bad Jesus. Ah, and then the light began to come on, right? Light bulb above my head, because I began to realize the practical side of uh, 
the you know prosperity versus non-prosperity teaching and he was wonderfully spiritually aware for his sort of maturity level in in uh, in christianity because he'd recognized that there was something wrong with this prosperity teaching there was something wrong with this catholic teaching and he could see the good jesus inside me and he ended up finishing our meeting with tears in his eyes he begged me to go to the congo and to preach the gospel to his people because he said we have nobody there to tell us about jesus all we are told about is the bad jesus now I prayed at the time and, uh, you know, with COVID and everything, God hasn't uh, allowed me to go yet to the Congo. But one of the interesting things that has cropped up, we have started doing a lot more work in Africa with places like Malawi and Zambia. My father-in-law is often in these African countries dealing with the poor communities and teaching them. And uh, as part of that, obviously bringing the gospel as well. So who knows where God will lead us in the future. So pray for Thierry and all of his friends, because I'm still in brief contact with them or limited contact with them but it's certainly something that god's been put on my heart for a long time mm. is to go to africa and do something with um them there but one of the things that really got me the first time i was sort of really overwhelmed by the absurdity uh, of this prosperity gospel was the first time i was in the states right because we don't have you know the god channel and all these different christian prosperity channels here in the uk we sort of get some of the big names like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland kind of filter down into the UK. But the majority uh, of the, the prosperity stuff just gets, you know, passed over in the UK. Whereas in America, it is a really, really big thing. And I was in a very, very swanky hotel room one night that we'd been graciously put there uh, by some close supporters of ours. And I was flicking through the channels, right, as you do, finding Christian channel after Christian channel. And in each one of them, there were exactly the same. You need to send us money in order to actually receive blessings from God. And in one particular one, it made me laugh and then made me genuinely cry was because the first sign that came up was have you do you want us uh, have you got a, a request for prayer if you have a small request it'll cost you twenty dollars however if you have a big request for prayer something that god has really got to act on you need to send us fifty dollars and then we'll get be able to pray for you. And he was saying, you know, don't delay now, just do it no matter what. You know, God wants you to deal. You know, God wants you to uh, get rid of your debt. He's going to get rid of your debt for you, but you first have to pay us $60 in order to allow God to get rid of your debt. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And then the funniest slash saddest thing came up when a little bar came across the bottom. And I've got photographs of this, by the way. I took photos at the time where it had a disclaimer where it said, just because you donate to so-and-so ministries.com, um, this doesn't necessarily mean that God will act upon your seed. Blessings are a gift from God and uh, the so-and-so.com cannot guarantee any specific blessings will come to your door. Now, if you're having to put a disclaimer on your teaching, you probably shouldn't be teaching it in the first place. Joseph, just to put one thought there, it's probably a good place to finish this bit of discussion. Uh, if Sam's got another question or you want to proceed with the snakes and those sort of things, um, Jesus said, and it always impressed me coming from outside the church, freely you've received, freely give. Now, the gospel costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. And he calls you to take up your cross and follow him and do exactly the same. So, sure. yes, if you uh, love creation research, pray for us is the most important thing. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Just one really quick thing before we move on, um, just in re- relation to sort of end times. I've said this before, and something popped up in the news um, today, actually, um, which I thought was very interesting. I've said this before, um, is the whole sort of situation of governments imposing um, mandatory vaccination passes on on their constituents or their citizens or whatever. Um there was a preacher I watched on YouTube and he said that this is all going to be, this is all a, a dress rehearsal for the end times. Um, and to, and to be honest, this is just basically solidified even more. Um, that point, um, there's a, uh, article uh, on Sky News came through today. Uh, COVID-19 pass becomes mandatory for all workers in Italy among fears of unrest. Uh, basically, the article is just talking about how every single worker in Italy will need to have a COVID-19 um, vaccination and also a pass that they can show. Otherwise, they could be fined or and also they can lose their job or be um, put on leave with no pay um so this is all just a big uh it's just a big dress rehearsal this is just setting the stage to see it's sort of testing the waters to see if people will take it if they won't um and i i'm i'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are far closer than we were two years ago to the coming of jesus and and that's a good point to remind them next week we're going to deal with how does a christian respond to these things so thanks sam yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to our, our next topic, John, because it's sort of going to be kind of a little bit of part two. Or we're going to run through a few bits. I've got some nice pretty pictures to pull up in a minute, because um, for those of you who don't know, part of my background, certainly academic background, was that I worked as a zookeeper for six years. So we're completely changing topic now. And we're going to talk about those. Why would a good God make those creepy crawly things that seem to be made to kill and to bite and to scratch and to sting? Right, all these nasty kind of things. So, John, give us a perspective of Australia, because in the UK, yes, OK, we may not like spiders or snakes, but we have fairly tame creatures as far as it goes about biting and sticking and uh, stinging and so on and so forth. What's it like in Australia? OK, I'm at the service station. It's uh, sort of just past sunset, so getting a little hard to see things in that sort of twilighty effect. In Australia, for those of you who don't know, it's either daylight or it's dark. It, there's no long twilight, what you're used to in England or America or Canada particularly. And mm. so we were just getting to the point where the light was switching off in the sky and they really didn't have lights that would match that come on straight away. So I'm at the petrol pump. I'm pumping fuel into the car. I leaned on the top of the roof and all of a sudden I saw a big shadow run right across my arm, stop and then go pow pow and there were two sets of fangs side by side and all of a sudden i didn't feel very good at all now i suspected this was a tarantula of some sort mm-hmm. but i thought well the doctors is just down the road that's where i'm heading i've got a car i'm getting down there and and i got to the doctors and basically he, he said what sort of a spider was it i said well it's dark i said i can't really tell you and i didn't catch it he said, well, he said, I'm going to have to give you antibonine for everything. Now, I'll be honest, I think that was overkill because I was then sick for three weeks from the, from the antibonine. But he did warn me, he said, if it was this spider, he said, it will keep coming back. He said it recycles in some way. We don't know how. But he was right because you would get this sort of cold, nervous, uh, muscular 
um, some, something went wrong with your whole body and you knew you had an attack and that went on for month after month after month. So despite the illness from the first couple of weeks, uh, I didn't die, obviously, but it certainly did recycle. So don't be surprised when people come to Australia, they are frightened of our spiders. The biggest one we have problems with is the one the Americans sit on because they find it hard to believe we have spiders that build hidey holes in the grounds. And so treating an American backside for a spider bite is rather difficult. You can't put a tourniquet on it or anything like that. So watch out for our funnel web spiders. Did you grow up in Australia? And basically, this is part of your bush law. As you grow up, your parents, responsible parents outside the city will teach you this thing. Sadly, as Australia becomes a, a more citified place, most of the city kids don't know this. And so you find increasing numbers of bites and things like that and ignorance yeah. of the general sort of effect. Um, we have a lot of, uh, as summer comes on and the wet season begins to move in, you should see the reports of people calling snake catchers. We have professional snake catchers who you ring up and they come and remove the snakes from your yard. But as most of them will tell you, they're harmless pythons. You, know, you can drag them around your neck. You can make pets of them. You can pick them up. Uh, I've got one that's about 10 to 12 feet, uh, three to four meters in my backyard, and he shows up every now and then. Of course, when his big brother, who's a big black water python, shows up, then I treat him with respect. So what you'll find is most snakes in Australia um, do have venom. Some don't have any venom at all. They're the strangulating ones like the pythons. But even the ones that have venom are not actually a problem to you unless you are aggro to them, unless you stomp on them, unless you sort of uh, ill-treat them. They'll bite you if you, first of all, uh, do something bad to them. Mm -hmm. Now, I say that because when you look at the biblical picture, and I'll hand back to you after this, Joseph, to comment on venoms. When you look at the biblical picture, God made everything very good. And in that very definition of very good is not just a moral definition. It's a definition where God told Adam all the animals would eat plants. They would all eat the fruit of the field. None of them would be killers. So whatever their venom is for cannot be for chewing little Johnny uh, or digesting little Billy or anything like that. Right. They were not. That was not part of God's plan. And so what you'll find is when you go down through history and you grow up in a country where there are lots of supposedly agro animals, you discover one little secret. The biblical perspective is that animals became violent after we did. A good reason for it, I've seen little kids turn animals that are nice and unnasty into vicious things. Why? Mm -hmm. They sit there with a little pussycat and they poke it with a stick until it lashes out. And then the little kid cries, oh, the pussycat hurt me. No, no, the kid hurt the pussycat first. And the yeah. pussycat used its sharp claws, which it already has for climbing trees and things like that, as a means of defense. But it's a learned reaction. Take it away from there, Joseph. Yeah, well, one of the things that I uh, found interesting when I worked as a zookeeper, and we used to do uh, animal encounters. So we used to bring out snakes and spiders and all sorts of wonderful creepy crawly and slithery things in order for the public to actually come and uh, get involved with them, right? And it's amazing how scared people in the UK are of snakes and spiders, even though we, quite frankly, don't have anything to worry about, right? But um, 
One interesting thing that I found was a Australian couple had brought their family to the zoo where I was working, and uh, they came from in Queensland, up near your way, John, right? A little bit more in the bush. And they'd come out and they were talking to their kids, you are allowed to touch these snakes and you're allowed to touch these creepy crawlies because the nice man here, me, is telling you you're okay to touch them and we're in a zoo. But you must never, ever touch any snake or any animal if it's in the wild, right? That's how I figured out that they, you know, we talk more and they find out they're from Australia and you think, oh, that makes sense, right? Because you don't really have that kind of pep talk with kids in the UK. You just don't need it, right? And so uh, it was an interesting time working at the zoo because you get to experience a lot of these creatures. You also get to experience some of the nasty side of creatures as well. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story now which I've told many, many times, uh, but it's always fun to tell it again, right? We had uh, some pet iguanas. What are iguanas? Well, they're big lizards, right? Now, in fact, I'm going to pull up, actually, a... Um screen uh, a screen share i've got a nice little powerpoint lots of lovely little uh, lots of lovely little uh, photos see if that works there we go um let's uh, just pull it up here so iguanas are large lizards and we actually had the chance to look after these creatures and on one occasion it ended up getting bitten by one right it swung around and grabbed hold of me by the hand and as it did this uh well the teeth were extremely sharp they were extremely, um, you know, serrated, backward pointing teeth sunk into all of my flesh. And as I prized the mouth open and pulled it out, what I noticed over a few days was that actually it began to puff up. It began to go a bit purpley. And recently, and I'm only talking about in the last few years, three to four years, we've discovered that green iguanas actually have venom in them. They have a mild form of rattlesnake venom, so when you get bitten by them, the venom reacts and you end up getting uh, toxins running through your system. One deadly bite is what I've called a presentation. It's a presentation we've done many times, and it deals with this topic of venom. All right, there's a snake for our American viewers. It's the Western Diamondback Rattlesnake. Um, it's a pretty nasty creature. It shakes its tail. It's got some pretty deadly venom in its fangs there. Stuff that you really don't want to get bitten by. Of course, the question is, why would a good God make such a bad thing? Now, there are lots of questions to be asked. You can ask the question, why would God create venom? You can ask the question, is venom the result of the fall? You can ask the question, could venom have had a different use than what it's currently used for? Could the venom have got worse after the curse so it couldn't kill before, but it got worse afterwards? In which case, you know, is it something, uh, is it, did it have a different use before the curse? And you can also ask the question, are there any vegetarian animals that are also venomous? Because if you were to find some vegetarian animals that are venomous, it would indicate that there is a different purpose to venom rather than just killing things. Now, we need to run through this because... If you go onto some of the major creationist websites and you type in venom or why would a good God make bad things or when did attack or defense structures come about, you get some different ideas, some interesting ideas, sometimes some rather silly ideas. But here are some ideas, uh, creationist ideas, Christian ideas about the origin of venom. 
One idea is that God actually equipped snakes with venom to survive in a fallen world. In other words, God knew that the world uh, would need to be cursed, that Adam and Eve would sin, and so God equipped snakes, and before uh, he either controlled them or he, uh, uh, you know, because man had dominion, they didn't bite and didn't inject venom or anything like that, but God equipped snakes with the purposes of being able to survive in a fallen world. Another idea is that venom was not actually created until after the fall because venom is a you know a bad thing it kills so it wouldn't have actually come into being until after the fall. One idea is that venom just arose naturally after the fall that it is just a case of uh, mutations or so on and so forth and it arose by itself uh, after the curse had come on. And the other idea is that God actually designed snakes to kill but he physically limited their killing ability before the world was cursed. Now, every single one of these um, ideas, uh, I will stand up today and say they are wrong. And the reason that they are wrong is because they are all based on the same assumption that people like David Attenborough and Richard Dawkins base their assumptions on. And you can find some of these ideas, by the way, in major Christian and creationist organizations today. What's the problem? Here it is here. Sir David Attenborough, Life in Cold Blood. Uh, great program, by the way. Stunning um, visuals and film work. And well, have a look at what he said here. Snakes are the ultimate killing machines. You do realize that every single one of these ideas is based on the assumption that venom is designed to kill. Every single one of these assumptions or ideas uh, is based on the assumption that snakes are designed to be killers, that snakes are equipped with something in order to kill. You're actually taking the same standpoint that people like David Attenborough and Richard Dawkins and the atheists take if you try and promote these ideas. What you need to do is make sure you're starting from scripture, starting from that basis that everything that God created was very good and actually move forward from there and apply scripture to the real world and not the other way around. This is what evolution says. This is what Richard Dawkins and David Attenborough and the atheists believe. They believe that in the beginning there was the Big Bang and all by itself, hydrogen turned into multi uh, compounds. Uh, they turned into molecules. They turned into microbes, monsters like the dinosaurs, man, and onwards and upwards. In other words, it all happened by itself. There was no need for a special creation. In fact, if this is true, then a special creation is unthinkable. Of course, what's the solution? We start from scripture. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And as John mentioned earlier, we tend to view good as a moral word today, but it is so much more than that. In the beginning, God created everything perfect. And then Adam and Eve sinned. Um, Eve was deceived. She was tricked by the serpent into eating the tree uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam willfully chose to disobey. And as a result, the world was cursed. The world had changed from good to bad. Death entered the world, and we everything began to go downhill, including us, including thorns. You do realize that all thorns are the result of a genetic mutation or a problem, a mistake in the plant, which either causes the leaves to shrink, which is in this case, and the tubes which normally are designed for taking 
water to the leaves and sugar back down end up sticking out in a prickly or you end up with uh, thorns that are a mutation which produces a spiky thing sticking out the side or a mutation which means that the um, branches can't continue to develop into leaves and so they leave a sharp stick out the side thorns by absolute certainty are the result of the fall we know that just from scripture as well as from the science scripture says they didn't come onto the earth after the fall and we can see that thorns are the results of mistakes thorns and prickles are the result of problems thorns and thistles are the result of a very bad world nasty spiky things um, including these examples that we actually got from the UK. And we even found some newer thorns just the other day uh, in Castleton around the Peak District, some rather fabulous thorns. And it makes a very important point. If these thorns are, you know, in the fossils, uh, which they are, they're buried in the rocks, then these rocks are not 380 million years old, as the uh, secular scientists like to say, but they're actually less than 10,000 years old. Because according to the Bible, and according to what we observe about thorns, they are the result of a mutation, they are the result of the fall, therefore they didn't come onto the earth until after Adam sinned, therefore they were not on this planet until after man was on this planet, and these rocks have to be very young indeed. Wonderful fossils from all over the world. Okay, um, let's talk once again about this creature here. Um, this is a green iguana, the one I was talking about earlier. Oh, actually, this one was the friendly one. Um, we had a nasty one called Hannibal. I didn't name him, by the way. And he was the one who bit me. The one that I told you we've recently discovered, and I mean in the last three to four years, the green iguanas like these, not only do they have serrated, backward-pointing, extremely sharp teeth, which sink through flesh and tendons, they are also venomous. They have venom glands, they are able to inject venom, and it's enough venom to actually kill a small mammal, like a guinea pig or a mouse or something like that, right? Um, it's not just green iguanas, by the way. Here's Methuselah, our bearded dragon, and he too has sharp, serrated, backward-pointing teeth that are also venomous, enough to kill a small mammal. Huh, okay. Question, what do these creatures eat? The answer is quite simple. Um, whoops, just hopefully try and get it to play this time. Here we go. There it is just there. Um, you can see we've put some grub out for them. There's uh, Boise is there on the uh, left. Hannibal, the one who bit me, is there on the right. And they're munching into meat. No, they're veggies. They love veggies. In fact, meat is actually quite dangerous for them. Um, they are 100% vegetarian. In fact, let me show you this other video here, if I can get it to play, because have a look at um, uh, Hannibal, our green iguana here, as he is munching on this tough cabbage leaf. Can you notice a characteristic which is also present in modern day meat eaters? Watch carefully. There he is, biting hold of it. And there he is, swinging his head side to side to rip off a chunk of the tough cabbage leaf. Now, John, are you there? I'm still here. Okay, now in Australia, a little bit further north from where you are, you have some rather large reptiles as well that like to swim and go snap. Is that true? We certainly do. They're called crocodilians. Crocodilians. And we have... Uh, these bearded dragons where we are as well. Uh -huh. And uh, we've observed this behavior 
hit down under in Australia of uh, now discovered venomous creatures that are 100% vegetarian. Yeah, but can you see the way that uh, Hannibal here was shaking his head from side to side in order to rip off a great big tough chunk of cabbage? Do you see that happening with crocodiles with meat? We certainly do. Um, if they tackle a live animal, they prefer, you know, even though it's sort of folk talesy that it drowns it, and then when it's a bit softer, it rips it up because its teeth actually can't rip huge chunks out of a fighting animal. Uh, its teeth are not bedded like yours are. The teeth will rip out, they'll break. One of my friends who keeps crocodiles had a crocodile bite his hand and the tooth stuck in his hand. It broke off. They're not fighting teeth. They're not killing teeth. They need to shake the thing you know, even to get a saw-like effect like you saw with the uh, lizard there biting off the big chunks of tough exactly. cabbage leaf. It actually makes it a lot more effective. Now, this makes two points. First of all, obviously, green iguanas, extremely sharp teeth, um, just like many animals today, like the T-Rex had extremely sharp backward pointing serrated teeth. But just like the iguanas, um, it was a plant eater. It eats plants, and so it's using its sharp serrated teeth, which can easily cut through flesh, by the way, and I'm testimony to that. Uh, they use it to eat plant so sharp teeth or teeth in general only tell you how an animal eats not what an animal eats also what we're seeing here is characteristic um carnivore behavior the shaking of the head from side to side to rip off chunks of food right ah it's evident just like venom is evident in herbivores and in carnivores it's also evident with the way that you consume stuff in other words the yeah, behavior yeah. tells you how you eat it not what you're actually eating did you want to comment john can i can i comment here on baby crocodilians uh, crocodiles uh, don't do too well where i live which most people are grateful for because the <laughs> winter time is too cold even though it's sort of subtropical yeah. you sort of have to breed them if you want to run a successful crocodile farm from Bundaberg and North, where it's much warmer for the whole of the year, their stomach uh, dissolves things in, once it's digested, the big chunks that come from ripping off, whether it's cabbage or meat, uh, will go rotten in the stomach unless it can have a warm-blooded or a warm effect of the enzymes. But there's one other thing that most people don't get. It's not in the textbooks. It's not on David Attenborough. When the crocodiles are born, you may remember they're born out of eggs, which are laid on the mm -hmm. riverbank. And, and the, there's two interesting things. One is the temperature depends. Uh, the, the temperature of the hatching governs whether you're a boy or a girl, which is mm -hmm. grateful that it didn't happen to me that way or you that way. But when they first start swimming, they go and they eat plant material. So they're vegetarian when they're young. And then they'll swim up the river uh, to where there's a rocky patch and they'll start swallowing rocks because they don't chew their food, either vegetable or animal. And when you find the adult crocodile, it's inevitably got stones in its stomach because it didn't chew its food. And if it doesn't grind up the food with those stones, and some of you may realize that dinosaurs had the same feature. Right, Gastros, many of them yeah. have stomach stones because they couldn't chew up their food either, and there is no evidence against the the proposition that dinosaurs, like the big teeth lizards and the crocodiles, started out as vegetarian. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, let's let's move back to venom now, though, and let's talk a little bit about venom and the backgrounds of venom. Um, 
What did snakes eat in a very good world, including the venomous ones? Well, the answer is simple. I mean, what do their snakes actually have? They have sharp teeth, they have venom, and they have heat sensors. Now, according to secular science, each one of these are specifically designed in order to kill. Sharp teeth for stabbing, venom for killing, and heat sensors, which are actually designed to... Well, they claim that they're designed to hunt. They seek out living creatures, right? They seek out mammals in order to be able to go and hunt and catch them. Um, what good are these for in a good world? Well, venom and poison. Here's some uh, a pit viper. He has some wonderful heat-sensing pits, uh, and you find these in the big pythons, like John's friend at the bottom of the garden. We worked with boa constrictors and uh, Burmese pythons and the lot, right? They all have these heat-sensing pits. Now, according to secular science, these are supposed to be for finding mammals, although they've recently changed their minds. Uh, science now says knowing when to slither underground to beat the heat is a key survival for a cold-blooded creature, and the researchers say that thermoregulation, not hunting, may be why the pits evolved. In other words, the pits are extremely important for understanding when it's time to go and get into the sun, where the best place to be in the sun is, and where the best place to get out of the sun is, right? Where's the coolest spot? Ah, there's an alternative mechanism for these hit, uh, uh, heat-sensing pits. Now, does that mean that snakes don't use the heat-sensing pits for hunting today? Of course they do. It is a very good design originally created for a good purpose, which is now being used in the wrong way. Um, teeth and venom? Well, John uh, already mentioned about the crocodiles, right? They can't chew. And so the crocodiles, which aren't venomous, by the way, have to swallow stones in order to help grind them up. Snakes have got a problem because they don't really swallow stones. They're long and thin, right? It wouldn't really work. But you see, teeth will grip and pierce food. We've already talked about that. Teeth will also inject venom into the food. Now, what is venom. Well, this is how you know that venom couldn't have just arisen by itself, uh, nor do I believe that it was created after the fall, because venom is a mixture, an extremely complicated and complex cocktail of proteins and enzymes that break down food. Now, what are enzymes? I mean, you think back to your sort of high school biology textbook days, enzymes are essentially catalysts. They speed up a process, right? Ah, and process is the key here, by the way. Uh, your spit has got enzymes in it because it starts the breakdown of the food as you chomp and chew it round, right? And you swallow it down, and there you go. Snakes can't chew. Snakes have to swallow things whole in one go. Hmm. Venom? Okay, what actually does venom do? That's probably a good place to start. What does venom do? It digests. That is its actual purpose. It is designed to digest. Why does venom kill you? Because it started to digest you. There are two major toxins in venom. There is a hemotoxin and there is a neurotoxin. Neurotoxins attack your um, nervous system, right, by digesting the nerves and so you can't feel anything and you just stop like that. Uh, that's the one that will kill you quick. Um Hematoxin attacks your blood. It begins to digest your blood, which causes it to coagulate. It can no longer flow through your veins. And as a result, you will die a longer, slower death, but you will be very, very dead by the end of it, right? Unlike some neurotoxins, in which case you can still be alive, but paralyzed, and it just takes a little bit longer to actually kick in, right? Uh, but in both cases, venom, the toxins, 
are digesting you. And it turns out that many of these toxins and venoms, if not all of them, are just as good at digesting plants, just as good as digesting veg vegetation, as they are to digest you. It just so happens that the snake is using his very good design, which is designed to help him consume food in a very bad way. Why do it this way? We've already mentioned that snakes don't chew, nor do they dislocate their jaws, by the way. Uh, that's a common one. They actually have a very specially designed skeletal system, which means that due to their quadrant bone, which you can see on the back there, they can actually expand their jaws, unfold them right far out, and they have got stretchy skin underneath their chin, and their two uh, jaw bones aren't actually joined together, so they can stretch them out very, very wide and swallow a very, very large creature indeed. Ah, venom is a very good design, by created by God for a very good purpose in order to digest. Now it is being used in a bad way. You need to actually put on God's glasses and take Darwin's glasses off. Adding to the equation, the real history of weather, in the beginning everything was very good. Adam and Eve were walking around naked and they weren't freezing to death and neither were they getting sunburned. Skip forward to Noah's day, you have the first reference to rain in the Bible. And afterwards, God gives a promise that for as long as the earth shall remain, there'll be cold and heat. There'll be summer, there'll be winter, there'll be seed time, and there'll be harvest. Harvest. Skip forward to the time of Job, and you find that uh, the first ever reference to ice and hail and snow is recorded in Scripture. By Abraham's time, you have a drought, and you have to go to Egypt. By um, uh, Joseph's time, you also have a drought, and they have to go to Egypt. And all of a sudden, you have hard-to-live areas. Now, if you're a snake living in the Australian outback, where the only plants are large trees or tough grasses, could you be able to survive purely on plants? Of course you couldn't, because plants uh, like grass, tough grass, requires, uh, in order to be able to consume, a special collection of stomachs in order to digest and redigest and digest once more uh, in order to get all the nutrients out. Snakes don't have that. So snakes are faced with the option of either dying out and going extinct, which is evident that happened to many, many different kinds of animals, or using their very good design in a very bad way in order to survive. That's why you find, by the way, the highest concentration of venomous creatures, or extremely venomous creatures anyway, are found in the very hard-to-live areas. Australia is unique because it has more venomous snakes than non-venomous snakes. But then that's not really surprising when you consider how much of it is pretty much inhospitable. If you didn't have this amount of toxin in your venom, then you would have died off completely, leaving only the extremely venomous ones. No, snakes didn't evolve there. It just so happens that the venomous ones that are there now are the only ones that have been able to survive. Everything else has died off. Make sure you get a biblical perspective. And as the world degrades and there's not much veg, snakes actually have to use these good designs to defend themselves as well. I hope you realize that snakes can actually choose when to inject venom. At least 25 to 50% of known snake bites are dry bites. And do you want to know an interesting statistic? Uh, the vast majority of these dry bites are to women and children. It seems that snakes and reptiles can certainly tell the difference between male and female, and they can tell the difference between young and old, and most of the time they will choose to put a dry bite into a young child or into a female as opposed to a male. 
human being that is. Um, interesting little thought there uh, about Dominion and the promise that God gave uh, to the snakes as well. Of course, if you're wearing Darwin's glasses, and we'll finish on this point, uh, you will define evolution as change. You'll call all change evolution. Next, you'll accept change in snake diet and behavior, behavior as proof of evolution. Therefore, you will dismiss creation as completely unthinkable. The final point, there are many theories that disagree with everything in the Bible, but the facts never do. One deadly bite? No, this is one good design gone wrong. In the beginning, snakes were very good, and they were created with venom, or somewhere at least were created with venom, which was very good. It's now being used wrong way, and there's your reason why. There's the real deadly bite. It's when man chose to willfully sin, and as scripture says, through one man sin entered the world, death entered through sin, and death came corruption of the human race, and the actual need for a global flood in the first place, the judgment of God on the planet, the judgment of God on the human people, humankind uh, at the Tower of Babel, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, this is why the present is not the key to the past. If you want to ask, get the answer as to why the snakes have venom and how could God create them in a very good world, you need to go back to the past to actually find out what went wrong. I'm going to finish there and hand back over to John for any further comments mm -hmm. uh, before we uh, continue with some questions from this session. Okay, um, thanks for that, Joseph. A big view, and uh, hopefully they can take it all in, but they can get replays of this. Um, Sam, if you put up where they can get replays to see all this over and over again, I'm sure they'd love that. And the more you share this, the better it is for you, the better it is for us. Um, there is one general comment I'll make. Uh, a uh, church that I did by Zoom two weeks ago in Rockhampton, um, we had a Q&A time afterwards, and one of the people there said, well, what about spider bites? Uh, mm. Were they venomous in the beginning? So Dr. Diane Eager, who's not with us this morning, I said, well, you're the medical biologist. You know all about the, uh, the biology of this, that, and everything else. Could you actually do an answer about spiders and insects and bee stings and wasp stings and all of those things that to most of us, we treat as abhorrent. You know, I don't want to be stung by a bee. My, my sister is allergic to these things. She swells up. Well, to give you one clue, I'm not. I used to keep bees and I had 47 bee stings around my neck and it just went red and was itchy. I know one person, one bee sting, and if you don't get them to the hospital really fast, they are in serious, serious trouble. So it's often not the animal that's gone downhill. It's often the person's immunity system as well. So there's two things in this big good to bad to worse picture, and that's one. But for full details, Dr. Nainig has done a wonderful job, and it's now posted on our Q&A website. So I'll get Sam to put that up to creationresearch.net, Q&A, and then just search for bees or bites or snakes or things like that. You'll find a lot of this has the information and the references there, right? So that's creationresearch.net. Press the Q&A button. And, and again, if you want a lot of this, you'll find it also, even the stuff, uh, some of the bitey stuff we've done deliberately for David Attenborough, the diseases and things like that. And the DVD was handed. Remember DVDs? They were handed to him. So you can actually get these now on streaming. 
You can download them as MP4s. Yeah. You can stream them. And some people have discovered, hey, I can't give away a stream thing. Uh, do you still have these on DVDs? So the answer is yes, we do until the stocks run out. So just ask. And I think you've still got some DVDs over there, Joseph, got in England. Plenty of DVDs, yeah, yeah. yeah Can no, I just add one too. little thing onto your B story, right? Because we have a little uh, stripy, buzzy thing over here called a wood wasp, right? And uh, people tend to get frightened of these creatures, including my wife, who saw a massive hornet-type thing, you know, huge, great big, I'm not exaggerating, this kind of size creature, right, flying around. And you go, oh, my goodness, he's going to sting me. And on the back of it, it has the largest stinger. It's almost the same length as the creature itself, right? An enormous stinger on the back, which looks very, very deadly indeed. Until you realize that wood wasps can't actually sting you, right? This stinger is not designed for stinging. This stinger is actually designed for laying its eggs. And it will use this to drill into the tree and lay its eggs where the uh, well, larvae will hatch out until they turn into pupa, where they will then pupate into the wood wasp, right? And you've also got to ask yourself with things like queen wasps and queen uh, bees, the ones that are actually doing the laying of the eggs, right? Where do they lay their eggs from? The answer is their stinger. Right. So in other words, stingers have got an alternative use. And I wonder, there'd be more research needs being done to it, but I wonder if the stinger originally had some purpose into actually dissolving or digesting part of the tree in order to actually be able to help lay the eggs inside of it and get it a little bit deeper. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. But for sure, you can conclude that there is certainly an alternative um, an alternative reason for venom and add that to, like you say, John, not everybody's allergic to it. And also add to that, that in the beginning when God gave man dominion, there wasn't a single bee, wasp or hornet who would dare sting humankind uh, at any point anyway. There is one other thing. One of my uh, colleagues was bitten by the blue ringed octopus. Which oh, yeah, in the past yeah. 40 years has become famous um, because it's, it's such a pretty thing. It glows bright blue with ro almost rotating rings. But if it puts its beak into you, it can sting you with what's usually regarded as a fatal sting. But mm. the doctors have, over here have discovered what it does is the so-called venom shuts your respiratory system down. But if you can give that person artificial respiration, you know, where you sort of pump their chest and breathe into them at the same time, and then your body will continue to get rid of that toxin and treat it just as any other foreign invader, and then the person will recover. Uh, so it's a question of how your immune system copes with it. Some people do it pretty quickly. Some people take forever. Some people can't do it. So always investigate, is it just the animal? Is it the plant? Or is it a failure in breakdown in the human body as well? All of those things will be involved. And the key point, Joseph, is... Is there another usage in a good world where what it's currently doing would have yeah. been absolutely harmless, right? Yeah. If a snake is venomous and it never bites you, no problem, right? In a good world, it wouldn't have bitten you. And that's the attitude. If you're a Christian, you want to point that out, just as we did to David Attenborough. So get that DVD, Did a Good God Make Bad Bugs? It covers Absolutely. all sorts of things like that. As we said, it's available. And Sandy can put that streaming uh, address up, MP4s, DVDs. Joseph's still got some. We've still got some. So get these, share them around, share this program around. It's so helpful to many people who are absolutely confused because of the world's attitude. 
if there's bad things, God must be blamed for it. For sure. uh, they don't believe in God at ordinary times, except when they want to blame him for something. <laughs> exactly. By the way, I just saw in the chat, we've also been joined by our good friends over at Standing for Truth. Um, I'll be over at Standing for Truth in a, in, a, in a little while, a few weeks' time, and we will be dealing with this topic, but a lot, lot more in depth with a full presentation and everything, uh, and dealing with things as well, like frogs. You know, why are there such a things as poison dart frogs, right? And I've got wonderful superpowers because I can actually touch uh, poison dart frogs and I can then lick my finger afterwards and I don't die. How do I get these superpowers? You'll have to tune in to Standing for Truth when I'm on there and find out how. But uh, we get a live demo of this. Then. Uh, <laughs> I would like to be able to give a live demo of it. And I'm completely serious. We are, we are working towards uh, part of our museum project. We want to have a venom exhibit where we have some wonderful venomous tarantulas and scorpions and poison dart frogs and i find all these things fascinating anyway but yeah i'll quite happily you know touch a frog on the back and give my finger a lick uh, a poison dart frog and uh, and uh, i will i will live to tell the tale so um we'll uh, you'll find out more about that and how i can actually do that uh later on when i'm on over at standing for truth so great stuff john any final comments before we dive into some questions no i i think the perspective we've just given uh, yeah. see it. god is telling the truth he made a good world don't blame him for things that are bad it's a result of the fall even violence amongst animals has come because we did it uh -huh. first uh -huh. we did it to them they've reacted and also everything is running downhill and look in the mirror if you want to know who's the problem it's us we all yeah. need jesus christ whether we're a professional TV presenter, whether we're a person who just enjoys watching YouTube, or whether we're not even competent to turn it on yet. Absolutely. Great stuff. All right, Sam, how are we doing with the chat? Have we got any questions? What's we do have going? some questions, but Wonderful. I have a question for you first. Oh. Oh. So you see this is a normal set of keys. However, there's something very special about my set of keys here. I've got a little chain here. Don't know if you can see there that. We can see. There we go. Oh yes, lovely. It's uh, an emperor scorpion. Yeah. So the question I've got here, I don't know if you can see that there. It's, oh, it's actually come out quite well. Is they've got mm -hmm. a nice little stinger on the back of there mm -hmm. on the sure. tail, and these great. Well, I'd say big claws. I mean, they're quite big for such a small scorpion. Mm -hmm. Um, I got this quite a while ago, so I'm I'm quite. Oh hello, <laughs> we've got another creature oh, joining the stream. <laughs> <laughs> come on off you come <laughs> sorry <laughs> Mike, decided to... <laughs> it's like, what have you got? <laughs> we were joined by a visitor did you catch that john <laughs> no i was up getting my own uh, mummified creator <laughs> anyway, um, but my question was how does a scorpion like this fit into creation because obviously there is a stinger on the back which mm -hmm. will inject some form of toxin or venom sure. and also these these pincers on the front are quite nasty mm -hmm. if they get hold of you and usually it's a one-two combo they'll grab hold of you with the pincers and then they'll sting you mm -hmm. and then they might repeatedly sting you until you fall over or it might just sting you once and go so my okay. question is how does that fit into creation sure all right. Okay. I've been stung by emperor scorpions like that one. You know, the big black ones, they are 
pretty tame most of the time. You can hold them, you can sort of hold the pincers in between your fingers and hold the stinger back, and they're pretty tame and pretty chill. Um, and if you do get stung by them, it's sort of slightly less to about equivalent to a bee sting, which I used to keep bees just like John, and uh, I don't bother me particularly very much, right? The ones that you want to be really careful of, by the way, uh, are the ones that have little tiny thin pincers, Right, so those emperor scorpions, the big black ones, have huge, great big pincers, really, really strong. They can give you a nasty nip, but their venom is fairly low. It doesn't do much to you. Uh, it can only really be used for subduing small, creepy crawlies. Right, um, the ones that you want to be really careful of are the small yellow scorpions, which have very, very thin, very weak pincers, and it's those are the ones, the small ones that crawl into your boots at night and can give you a very nasty sting, which can actually prove to be fatal in a few select species right now are you starting to see a pattern here the big pincers very weak venom little pincers very strong venom now what are pincers good at doing they're good at ripping up and tearing up into little tiny bits and you will find that the inspiration for ridley scott's alien uh, the alien horror movie right was actually based on a scorpion because scorpions have these flaps which open up like this and then a little mouthpiece comes out and can actually nibble away at stuff but it's a very very small mouthpiece in order to actually be able to ingest it you need to have one of two things happen you either need to have big pincers which you can tear food up into lots of little tiny pieces and eat it or you need to have well if you've got very thin pieces you need a toxin which packs a punch in order to do the digesting for you the pre-digesting for you right so what you'll find is that scorpions just like spiders and snakes their venom is there for digesting or for certainly pre-digesting and the potency of the toxin depends on how good other tools you have, right? If you're a scorpion with great big pincers like your emperor scorpion, your stinger doesn't need to be very powerful because you only need to use it on very select occasions. And by the way, when it stings you, it's not trying to eat you. It's trying to do it out of defense, right? Just like the cat that goes, Row! right? It's doing it out of defense and it's using the only thing that it's got, right? Uh, to try and get you off of him. So again, that would only happen in a bad word, world anyway. But in a, an originally good world, whatever he's eating, if you have thick pincers, you rarely need to use your venom because you can tear stuff up into tiny little bits. You're strong enough. If you have little pincers which are only really good enough for holding it in place while you're eating it you need to actually pre-digest that food so you can actually rip into it beforehand so there's your little biblical perspective uh, on scorpions okay so okay. Do, so does the scorpion sort of like use its stinger tail to sort of like squirt on venom like sort of ketchup on chips no no it, it sticks it in <laughs> and it injects it right uh generally generally speaking you've got to get the difference between poisonous and venomous venomous is almost always injection so if it bites you or stings you and you die then it's venomous if it touches you or you eat it and ingest it and you die then it's poisonous so when venomous creatures it will always inject it it will always stick it into whatever food it is and the enzymes and the proteins within the toxin will actually begin to work inside whatever it is you've injected it into to actually kill if it's alive and it kills it through digestion and then once it's digested in a nice sort of soupy mush inside it's then able to get inside with its little pincers and gobble it up okay coming from down under there's a down under experience which most countries don't have uh, particularly with scorpions because we have lots of them even at jurassic arc 
veterinarian and we have to sort of give a health and safety warning uh, for the kids not to go chasing them or pick them up or anything like that because most city people haven't actually had much experience with them. Okay, now my own background, the experience that most countries don't have these days, I grew up with what's called the dunny down the back, uh, an outhouse, a toilet, right? A wooden structure built as far away from the house as you possibly could because it stank. Uh, you did your dunny there every night uh, before you went to bed and you hoped you didn't have to go down during the middle of the night. There was no lights down there, but you're, you grew up with your mum or your dad giving you a warning, always lift up the wooden seat and check what's under there first because there's nothing worse than a scorpion sting in the backside. As I've already commented, it's a very hard place to put a tourniquet on and, and deal with poisons or denims or whatever you want to call it here. But it did bring to light another issue that Joseph has just raised. The bigger stinger, the smaller stinger, there's a relationship with the bigger pincers and the smallest pincers. And in fact, one of the things that's a characteristic of creation is that there is a correlation. Things, genes just don't act singly. They seem to be so connected. So the size of the, the, the pincers is governing the size of the amount of venom and vice versa. And it occurred to me that most people wouldn't be aware the same is true in snakes. There's been discovered a real genetic link because we do dig up snakes with fossil legs, right? Now they've lost their legs, except some of them, like our, our big pythons in Australia, they still have legs. You can cut open the python. I've done it and see that little legs inside. Some have legs that protrude and some of the pythons will use their legs to actually hold onto the female while they're mating. But here's what's been discovered. In snakes particularly, as your legs get shorter and shorter, it triggers a reaction in the number of vertebrae you've got. So if you have a normal lizard-sized reptile and it's a reptilian, like a dragon, you know how Satan is called the dragon, uh, a dragon-type creature, is it begins to lose its legs. And we see this happening even now because reptiles still lose their legs. It triggers a reaction to increase the number of vertebrae between those two points. So bigger legs, shorter backbone, longer legs. Uh, so it should lose the, the legs, then your backbone will extend and increase the length of the legs. Your backbone is reduced to the lizard type one. So yeah. just an interesting thought, nothing to do with poisons, but uh, it's just an interesting connection. And in fact, I think, Sam, there's somebody there who wants to know about wall lizards in Italy. Yeah, right. I mean, this has been a, a uh, there's been quite a few people have mentioned this actually. So I'll go back to the first one that's mentioned it. Uh, it's coming from Safe by Grace. Great to see you. Um, <laughs> Doki Doki's comment here has made me laugh. <laughs> CRT, my favourite team of assorted accents. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Right. Okay. So here's the question. Um, Save by Grace has said evolutionists have been using the Italian wall lizards as a modern example of evolution because the lizards have a completely new gut structure any new genetic information um, and then they've commented again this is sort of like a three comment uh, question, um, I can only fit so many words in a single comment, but what happened was five adult pairs of the Italian wall lizard were moved from one Croatian island to another in 1971 as an experiment uh, that had shocking results when the scientists returned to the island far later than originally planned, by the way. The island was swarming with lizards. Genetics, genetic tests confirmed that the modern... 
population of lizards are all descended from the 10 pioneers transplanted to the island nearly 40 years ago. The most fascinating discovery was the completely new gut structure. Apparently the lizards... <sighs> Again, another... <laughs> Previously not built to digest a vegetarian diet, while the island they were transplanted to is filled with plenty of plants. So do we have any thoughts on that long... Okay, question? I'll throw in a couple first because quite a few similar experiments have been done with different creatures, and the most famous deals with the beak length of finches in the Galapagos Islands. So again, if you go to creationresearch.net, press Q&A, look up finches or variation or anything like this, you will find a great preceding experiment in which their logic was change the environment, change the adaptation, change the selection pressure, it should change the creatures. And when they discovered we shift this many finches from island one to island two, come back in 20 years, 30 years, whatever, ah, look, the beak length has changed. Okay, true. Okay, but what's happening, of course, is the type of diet it can now eat is different than what it had on the other islands. Same as the wall lizard in Italy situation. Mm -hmm. Different sort of food available, then the lizard technically changes. Now, what's interesting is we've now had time with the experiment in the Galapagos Island to go beyond the silly claims, ah, a new species has evolved. Now, in reality, they couldn't figure out whether they should call the animals a different species or not because they were so similar in 99.9% .9 of their features. So they decided against calling them a new species. So there's no new species evolution at all. And you have to remember Darwin's theory is about the origin of species. No evolution on that sense. But run the test backwards. Shift the animals back to the island they came from. And if it's a real evolution, then the animal won't change back. In every case, if it started with a short beak, went to a long beak, shifted back, it goes back to a short beak and it's determined by the type of diet. So built into the beak, it turns out there's a whole series of sensors so that if you start chewing hard food and your beak has previously owned been soft, it's almost like your feet. I'm in England, I run on the soft sand. I'm in Scotland, I run on the freezing cold rock. Either I get thicker feet or I die out. Right. And so the same turns out to be true. It's a actual adaptation because it's a built in ability to change, to cope with change. So even though I haven't followed the Croatian island experiment, I'd predict that if you actually ship them back to the island they came from, you'll see the reverse change actually taking place. And I think if I remember, I've read correctly a bit that they, that they haven't even changed the species name of these creatures. Joseph, yeah. you're closer to there than I am. Yeah. Do you have any more comments? It, it popped up a little while back, and from my memory, not only have the species chain not changed name, um, they ended up sequencing the genome and found them to be identical to the mainland lizard. Uh, now, what it shows you is that these lizards already had the information for this diet. They already had the ability to adapt to this diet. And in fact, all they've done is simply that. They already have the information in the genome to be able to change to whatever they you know, need to change to in order to survive. And I suspect, as just like John has just said, if you change them back, they'll go back to their original diet. There's not actually been any evolution, only pre-existing information has actually manifest itself to the top of the chain in order to be uh, the dominant factor in that creature. Um, it's really as simple as that. Uh, and if the creature 
just happened to not actually have that genome or that information, then it would have died off moving to the island because it wouldn't have been able to change. Because right? it didn't, if it didn't have that pre-existing information, it wouldn't be able to survive. So um, that's all you're simply looking at. You're looking at one particular creature who already had the information necessary in order to be able to survive, as opposed to another creature that moved there and died off because it didn't have the information to survive. Right. So what you're actually looking at is evidence rather um, of design. That's all you're really looking at. Fantastic. Right. I think that pretty, that pretty much answers that question. Uh, we've got another right. one here from uh, Andrew Lane. Uh, is uh, They mistyped this first one, but they said, um, where were the, um, the Europeans during the Ice Age? That's what he meant to say. Well, Europe Europeans so was under the ice. <laughs> but, but, do you, but do you mean Europeans as in the, the people that were living there? Yeah. Okay. Um, th first comment from me then, and over to you, Joseph. And we're just about reaching our end point in time. We nearly had two hours. Great program today, folks. Keep the questions coming, and we'll see what we can do for you even after our program's done. Um, in terms of the European Ice Age, we mostly get a false impression that the ice came, stayed there for thousands of years, no one could live there, and then it melted um, until Europe gets populated like it is today. In reality, even the local history tells us the ice has come and it's gone. And the last ice age, um, you know, it, it came so quickly. There's one record that it actually covered up villages and they had to flee from the village. The ice was moving several kilometers per year. The whole valley was being filled up and then that ice would melt back. So you came, the ice came, you left, the ice melted, you went back. Nobody, to the best of my knowledge, had to flee to another country. And in fact, your uh, climate change DVD video uh, MP4 streaming on the ice in Iceland is a good example of this, Joseph. So fill in what you knew about it, because what happened in Iceland is a mini example of exactly what was happening in Europe. Sure. OK, um, let's give you a close to home perspective right i grew up on the norfolk coast uh in england the norfolk coast is very well known for its very unique geology uh there's what we would call as creationist flood-based geology and also post-flood ice age based geology in secular language you're talking about the quaternary and the cenozoic versus what you would call the um uh sort of the the tertiary and the paleozoic right so uh let's dive into that a little bit because what you find if you go to a place called Haysborough, uh, which is sort of, if you imagine Norfolk, the bump which sticks out of the side, right? Haysborough's down here. And all the way as you go up, you go past Cromer and Sheringham and West Runton and East Runton, all the way around uh, to Hunstanton, which I've led many field trips at, all those places. Particularly between Sheringham and um, Haysborough, you have a bed which is known as the Cromer Freshwater Riverbed or the West Runton Freshwater Riverbed, right? It's the same layer. It's a thick peat layer. It is absolutely full of plants and fossils, right? Sub-fossilized fossils. They're not fully permineralized because it is only a mud. It's a peat, right? Uh, and it's trapped all of these animals extremely quickly in a relatively shallow bed. Now, we don't see anything happening like that today. So there must have been a major catastrophe to actually produce this. The other thing we also find in this bed are footprints, 
human footprints. We find evidence of human tools, axes, axe heads, uh, going out into what is known as Doggerland, which is the basically the floor of the North Sea. You find entire towns and villages and settlements all living there underneath, and this is the key point, underneath the Ice Age deposits. Um, in other words, the ice came while people were still living there, and these people had to abandon and flee because one thing we don't find is a lot of human skeletons. Right? We find lots of evidence of human activity, lots of evidence of human interaction that then became covered by sometimes up to 150 to 200 feet of uh, ice age sediment, you know, glacial sands and glacial sediment, that as the ice was expanding, it was expanding so quickly, and the glaciers were moving so quickly that it was dragging huge volumes of this, uh, you know, sand and muck and dumping it down onto these big lakes and rivers and trapping the peat beds there, right? In other words, the ice came on so quickly while people were still living there. Now, if you go to anywhere in the sort of the northern and actually the southern hemisphere, same in Australia, John, um, what you find is evidence that very soon after Noah's flood, before the Ice Age came, there was a very warm, almost tropical climate around the world, right? Iceland, far up north, had a Mediterranean climate before the Ice Age came. You know that because I've been there and I've dug up fossils from there, right? Great fossils that can only survive in a Mediterranean climate, or the plants at least, can only survive in a Mediterranean climate, right? You come to the UK and uh, you can go up to the wilds of Scotland and dig down to the pre-glacial stuff and you find wonderful tropical plants. And this isn't even before going into the sort of, you know, flood deposits, Jurassic Cretaceous and looking at their plants and it was certainly warmer back then you seem to find evidence that it was very very warm after the flood probably as a result of Noah's flood but what you also have is the ideal conditions in order to produce a mass cooling of the planet because you have very warm oceans very cool atmosphere and as a result eventually you get a shift and you end up with a lot of this evaporating water from the hot oceans going into the atmosphere cooling extremely quickly and coming down on the land so you have an ice age where a good proportion of the Earth's surface, about 10% of the Earth's surface, is covered in ice. And as a result, it came on so quickly. And as a result of that, people had to up and flee. Where did they go? A bit further south. I mean, the ice essentially cut across East Anglia, right? And you can kind of map, map this roughly across the world. It came down a little bit lower in um, in um, North America, but that's because they don't have the Gulf Stream and we do, right? It keeps us a little bit warmer. In fact, it's almost tropical in some parts uh, of West Scotland. But you'll find that people upped and ran, left, left their villages, left their homes. They had to travel slightly further south. They were still certainly around because as soon as the ice disappeared, they moved back in. Uh, and they became what we would call, uh, in, in secular terms, or at least scientific terms, uh, the Mesolithic, uh, or Paleolithic rather, and the Mesolithic moving onwards, right? Paleolithic is before the ice, Mesolithic is sort of after the ice through Neolithic, and then into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and into the Romans, and off you go, right? So there are people living in Britain and in Northern Europe before the ice. The ice came, they had to up and abandon and run further south, but they certainly were around and came back within a few hundred years, which was really as long as the ice age took. Fantastic. And we've got one last question here, uh, again on lizards, uh, but it's from our good friend, Donny, uh, Stunning for Truth. Have you guys heard of the so-called new placentas evolved in some lizards? This is being used as evidence for macro evolution. 
I mean, probably my response to that is the uneducated person in the in this trio um, would be that they're still a lizard. That's my that's my input. You, you guys can you guys can probably go more into detail than I can. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add an Australian comment because uh, Donnie's questions probably come from overseas, um, America, Canada, or England. I really don't know. Um, most of the things that I've heard of that are called to be new, there's two explanations usually. One is we didn't see it till recently. There's nothing new at all. If you wanted to know if it was new or not find a preserved fossil, a lizard in which everything is present, because only then would you know if it wasn't existent in the first time. Uh, in terms of new, usually it's said, well, it, it, it reminds me of a mammal, so it must be new. This is revolving on their way up to mammals, but that's purely uh, suppositional. It's purely based on believing evolution in the first place. So those are the two comments that I would usually add, having not studied um, the, the question, Donna, you need to send a name uh, to be specific. So, Joseph, one last comment from you before uh, we uh, do run out of time. Um, okay. From my understanding and knowledge of lizards, all lizards have a basic placenta. It is different from a what we would commonly um, accept or refer to as a placenta, which is, of course, a mammalian placenta. But all reptiles, or female reptiles, I should say, have a very basic placenta. Uh, and in some reptiles, the placenta is actually developed enough so that they're able to produce live young, um, where they're able to sort of gestate the eggs inside of them inside this placental sac and they hatch out of there and uh, end up giving live birth in essence right now i don't know about this exact study i don't know about this new placenta if it's a if it's a recent find i know back in 2011 they were talking about skinks and uh, discovering them with placentas um from my memory it wasn't so much as oh this is something we've watched happen as in we've watched these lizards actually produce a new placenta rather than, oh, we've discovered a new kind of skink which has got a placenta, right? In other words, they were arguing that this placental kind of um, organism, or um, organ rather, uh, has evolved. I think they were arguing like four different separate times in the history and evolution of skinks, right? Again, what you're looking at is probably a pre-existing organ which has changed and adapted as it goes, just like we find some snakes and some lizards today can give birth to live young, right? By digesting, uh, sorry, by gestating the eggs within this placental sac. Now, if Donnie can actually give us a name or something like that, what I can promise you is that I will go away and talk with John and talk with also our medical biologist, Dr. Diane. In fact, I may even get in touch with our good friend, John um, uh, Terry, Simon Terry, who's good with the, the bugs and the slugs and the grubs and the lizards, and uh, see if we can find out uh, a little bit more about this particular research and dig a little bit deeper and when I'm on Standing for Truth next, or we could do it next week or sometime, uh, I can uh, I can dig it up, some information, and, and, and let you know what we find. But that is my, uh, my guess, my contribution to it. Um, I suspect it's probably a slightly more developed um, basic placenta, which all female reptiles have, as opposed to something that they've watched arise brand new, so to speak. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and that's just from it's by Grace saying thank you for answering the question. It's very welcome. It's what we do here. Right, um, I think that's in, 
I think that's it for the question. Well, we'll call tonight. that we'll call that uh, a night from there. I think even if there are a few more, I'll get if you want to run through it, Sam, and see if there are, then we can stick them um, up for next time. Remember, next time we're doing sort of part three of when should a Christian disobey the government, looking a bit more at the practicalities of it. So do tune in with that. That should be exciting. Uh, we've got a lot of preparation to do for that, John. So that should be really, really good. Uh, remember to like, share this video. Again, the more you can do this, the helps us enormously so please continue to do that you can donate and support us there are links underneath in the description of this video including links to the podcasts including links to the streaming sites and all the stuff we've talked about today so uh, do dive into that and have a look and we greatly appreciate any support uh, that you are able to give and we should soon have the uh, easy quick do it as you're sitting here um, support stuff set up fairly soon so uh, Sam can uh, can get on that and get uh, and let us know when that happens but uh until next time folks goodbye god bless it's been great to see you all it's been great that we've maintained a good uh, uh collection of people all the way through to the end it's been a really good run tonight john any last words no just uh watch out under the toilet seats for scorpions <laughs> when you come to australia <laughs> <laughs> good advice there from john down under catch you later guys it's been great see you in a bit see ya.